First two modules or lectures within this module dealt with the basic contours of common grace, an introduction and overview. And in the previous lecture, we covered the relationship between the Spirit's non-saving witness to the truth of general revelation. And we talked about the reformed notion of the new relation that emerges in Adam's sin. Not only does Adam change, but wrath is revealed from heaven. And so Van Til offers a critique of Hep and others who would try to find a general consent between believers and unbelievers with regard to that general truth in natural revelation. Van Til's claim is that no such general consent exists unless the unbeliever wants to consent to the fact that God reveals his wrath from heaven against sin. And unless they want to consent to the fact that they have sinned in Adam, fallen in Adam, lost original righteousness under the wrath and curse of God and are entirely corrupt. So the new relation moving from favor to wrath frames what Van Til began to call a concrete line of thinking. We are not dealing with abstract principles when it comes to humanity after the fall. We're not dealing with abstract principles when it comes to natural knowledge of God after the fall. We're not dealing with abstract principles when it comes to the Spirit's internal non-saving witness to those things after the fall. Van, Van Til calls that a natural theology of the Roman sort. That's what Van Til says we oppose as Reformed theologians. We, instead of thinking abstractly, think concretely. Now, in light of that, the next line of development in our lectures is the positive line of concrete thinking, earlier and later grace. This is Van Til's attempt now to forge a positive, Reformed alternative, a concretely Reformed theological alternative to the natural theology of a Roman sort. And Van Til, in beginning here with this positive line of concrete thinking, says what we would come to expect as we have traversed his corpus up to this point. He says, quote, Common Grace in the Gospel 64, the ontological trinity will be our interpretive concept everywhere. He says, we shall not fear to be boldly anthropomorphic because we have in our doctrines of the ontological trinity and temporal creation cut ourselves loose once and for all from correlativism between God and man, page 94. Here's Van Til's overarching point that we will develop. The ontological trinity without modification or limitation remains our interpretive concept everywhere. We saw in our previous module that the ontological trinity releases us from all forms of correlativism and now Van Til's going to connect the ontological trinity with a concrete approach to the problem of common grace. And Van Til says this, a fearless anthropomorphism now not only cuts us loose from correlativism, but he says it cuts us loose from abstract reasoning on the basis of metaphysical and epistemological correlativism. That's page 93. To be abstract, according to Van Til, is to proceed in terms of a metaphysic or epistemology that does not take its point of departure from the ontological trinity. It is abstract to begin with a general theory of being and then introduce the Trinity in terms of that general theory of being. It is abstract to begin with a general theory of knowledge and then introduce the triune God's revelation in terms of that general theory of knowledge. That is the way of abstraction. That is the way of that traditional Roman Catholic approach to natural theology. 
Instead, page 165, he says, we build our thinking on the ontological trinity and therefore on the revelation of the triune God as given in Scripture. This statement is the ontological foundation for the concrete line of thinking that Van Til advances on this topic. Whether it is the being or the revelation of God, we are Trinitarian in our approach, and we do not try to fit our doctrine of the Trinity or Trinitarian revelation into an antecedent abstract metaphysic or epistemology. Now, as we start to move toward the first central foundational observation about concrete thinking, beginning with the ontological trinity, Van Til says this, page 40 of CGG. With Warfield, paraphrasing Calvin, we would begin by saying, there is but one God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Each is this one God, the entire divine essence being in each, these three are the three persons distinguished from one another by an incommunicable property. This is Van Til's doctrine in thumbnail form of autothean perichoresis, what we studied in our module on the doctrine of the Trinity. To review that and put it very briefly, the Trinitarian persons of the Godhead are exhaustive of the essence of God and exhaustive of one another. He makes this explicit in Common Grace and the Gospel. He says on page 8, the persons of the Trinity are mutually exhaustive of one another and of God's nature. Or to quote from the Defense of the Faith, the first edition, page 69, there will be mutual and complete exhaustiveness in the relationship of the three persons of the Trinity. Or as he argues in the Introduction to Systematic Theology, 1974 edition, page 232, the persons of the Godhead are mutually exhaustive of one another and therefore of the divine essence. So the mutual exhaustion of autothean persons in perichoresis supplies the foundation of Van Til's doctrine of the Trinity. It expresses its interior theological logic. Now, as we start to move toward God as a concrete universal, the ontological Trinity as a concrete universal, it's time for us to put something on the board and explain in greater detail the interior structure of these Trinitarian relations. You remember we've always had up on the board the two circles and two lines, the creator-creature distinction and relation. What this diagram represents now is the interior Trinitarian contours of that large circle, the creator. Who is the triune creator? Who is the ontological trinity in his new relation to creation, thus the economic trinity, the one trinity in a new relation? This is a a diagrammatic rendering of the relations Van Til sets forth. First, there is one living and true triune God with a simple, undivided, uncommunicated, and self-contained essence, represented here in this interior circle. This is basic Trinitarian monotheism that Van Til unwaveringly advances. One living and true tripersonal God with one undivided, uncommunicated, simple essence. You remember Van Til follows Calvin that the essence of God is not communicated in the Trinitarian processions. It is simple, undivided, and uncommunicated. But, secondly, there are relations of subsistence, and I'm going to circle where those are here. 
there are relations of subsistence in the Godhead. And what is a relation of subsistence? It's simply this. The Father, represented by this line, is the one living and true God without remainder. The Son is the one living and true God without remainder. The Holy Spirit is the one living and true God without remainder. Each person subsists as the undivided fullness of the simple and uncommunicated essence of God. And so the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal in glory and in power and are the same in substance without qualification and without remainder. And so that starts to make explicit that there are three distinct subsistent relations that we have to conceive within the one undivided essence of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you look back to our second module on the Trinity, this is what Hodge and Bavink speak of in terms of subsistent relations. It's classical Reformed orthodoxy. But third now, there are processional relations. Processional relations that bring into view the incommunicable personal properties of each person. The Father is unbegotten. We call that paternity. The Father is unoriginate in his person. But in this line of relation to the Son, you find what we would diagram here as a relation of filiation. The Son, not deriving his essence from the Father, but receiving his person from the Father, is begotten from all eternity by the Father. The term for that is filiation. The Father is unoriginate, paternity. The Son, eternally begotten of the Father, and both have their essence from themselves, because the essence is simple and uncommunicated. Third, these two lines moving down, the Father and the Son relate to the Holy Spirit in an act of spiration. The Spirit is, as it were, spirated by the Father and the Son and does not receive His essence from either, but receives his person in this eternal act of spiration. And so, as you think about these relations, you have three things that have emerged. You have one living and true God, one undivided and uncommunicated essence, Trinitarian monotheism. Secondly, you have these relations of personal subsistence where the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is God without remainder in their distinct modes of subsistence. And third, you have these processional relations identified by paternity, filiation, and spiration that lay bare the personal distinction within the unity of the undivided essence of God. Now, this leads forth to what we will represent here by this line. This is a unidirectional line. It might be hard to see on the board. But in this processional relation of filiation, the Father is not the Son. That means that paternity is an incommunicable personal property that distinguishes the Father from the Son. Filiation is an incommunicable personal property that distinguishes the Son from the Father. So that while the Father is God and the Son is God, 
And while there is an eternal act of generation here, that does not blur, compromise, or elide the incommunicable personal properties within the Godhead. In a similar way, we would say that the Spirit is not the Father. So, the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Father is not the Spirit, and vice versa. And so, as we move in ascending levels of complexity and detail, we can add a fourth observation here. Represented by this bidirectional arching line. Even as the Father generates the Son and is not the Son, the person of the Son mutually indwells the person of the Father. That's a relation of co-inherence. And the person of the Father and the Son mutually indwells the Spirit and vice versa. This is the relation of personal coherence, or what we termed in our previous lecture, perichoresis. The Father indwells the Son, the Son indwells the Father, and the Spirit personally indwells both, and vice versa. These together form the theological substance of Van Til's doctrine of Trinitarian personhood and the relations among the persons. So you step back, and when Van Til summarizes, he says, the persons are exhaustive of the essence, relations of subsistence. The persons are exhaustive of one another, personal coherence, perichoresis. And yet, the persons are not confused with one another, incommunicable personal properties, paternity, filiation, and spiration. Now, with this in place, these, according to Van Til, and this is key for you to understand Van Til's doctrine of the Trinity, these are equally ultimate features of the Trinitarian life of the Godhead, the life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are one God. This, as far as I am aware, forms the entire substructure and maps out explicitly in detail Van Til's doctrine of Trinitarian relations. Wholly apart from creation, Van Til says this is the concrete line of thinking for Reformed Christians. This is the architectonic alpha point. And just along these lines, Van Til partly in order to enter into the common grace discussion, Van Til says, we shall call this, now, all of this that I've just mapped out, we shall call this our concrete universal. I'll add this, our reformed concrete universal. And this helps us recognize, by way of preview, that Van Til is going to take the correlative concrete universal of Hegel and fill it with reformed anti-correlativist Trinitarian content. That's the key to understanding his point. Now, getting to the heart and moving in the direction now of the concreteness in view when we talk about the Trinity, Van Til says early on, in Common Grace in the Gospel, pages 7 and 8, in the original uh, pristine uh, version of the volume, uh, devoid of commentary, he says this, Our claim as believers is that the moment cannot intelligently be shown to have any significance except upon the presupposition of the doctrine of the ontological trinity. Now, as a brief aside, that's the thesis of the whole project. That the moment in its lockstep transitions, the moment 
in the authenticity of secondary causes has its intelligibility, has its authenticity only upon the presupposition of this God and no other. No abstract conception, no correlativist conception. And then he says what we've reviewed, the persons of the Trinity are mutually exhaustive of one another and of God's nature. Think this diagram when you hear that from this point forward. It is this absolute equality and point of ultimacy that requires all the emphasis we can give it. Now just pause here. Van Til is saying that there is no hierarchy in God. There is one living and true God, one undivided and uncommunicated essence within the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit subsist as that essence, and in the eternal processional relations, the Father is not the Son, the Father is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Son, yet they mutually and personally indwell one another. That deserves, in its totality, all of the emphasis we can give it all the time. That's Van Til's point. And then, having said that, clearly and unambiguously, he says, involved in this absolute equality is complete interdependence. God is our concrete universal. Pages 7 and 8. By concrete universal, Van Til restates the doctrine of the self-contained and immutable ontological trinity in terms borrowed from the absolute idealists, Hegel in particular, in order to accent the absolute antithesis between confessional Trinitarian orthodoxy and the speculative correlativism of absolute idealism. The abstract correlativism of absolute idealism. For Hegel, of course, the concrete universal is the end of an historical process that sets the eternal principle of unity over against the temporal realm of diversity in a process of mutual interdependence and mutual process over time, so that unity and diversity posited abstractly are brought into an ever-deepening concrete relation that includes universals and particulars in mutual interdependence and mutual development over time. Now, the key that must be grasped turns on the mutual character, the mutual development of the absolute and the temporal, the universal and the particular. Spirit, or Geist, develops with and through space and time in a dialectical triadic process of development and growth. The thesis, antithesis, synthesis triad that runs as the organizing principle through the whole of Hegel's philosophy. To put it differently, the concrete universal for Hegel is an eschatological concept that actualizes all of the potential of the spirit through an historical process. Spirit, or Geist, develops consciousness over time by incorporating more universal and abstract and more particular and concrete features along the way, moving toward concrete universality. Van Til sought to do once and for all destroy the central feature of idealism. Van Til is not an idealist, but the sharpest and most programmatic critic of it in the 20th century. He sought to destroy the central feature of idealism, which is what? That the absolute engages in a mutual process of becoming along with creatures occupying space and characterized by the passage of time. Hegel is the king of philosophical correlativism. Van Til is the chief critic of all forms of correlativism. 
He says, our doctrine of the ontological trinity, as we've just quoted, destroys and cuts us loose once and for all from every species of correlativism, of which Hegel is possibly the highest expression. So what is Van Til doing when he speaks of God as concrete, universal, and maintains this robust, autothean conception of Trinitarian personhood in self-contained and independent fullness? Well, he's seeking to take the language from Hegel, emptying it of its original correlativist content, and filling it with the non-correlativist content of the self-contained trinity. That's concreteness, as Van Til defines it. So in addition to insisting that the triune God is immutable and self-contained in his relation to creation, and in the event of incarnation, Van Til says that in God, the unity of God, the undivided essence, and the Trinitarian persons who exhaustively indwell one another as subsistence in that essence means this, that God in his unity and in his diversity are equally ultimate. God is equally ultimate in unity and diversity. Now, how do we state this with a little bit more, still a bit more technical precision. How do we state equal ultimacy of unity and diversity in the Godhead in terms of classical Calvinistic Trinitarianism? Well, let me try to be a bit more precise and think especially now about the relations here of um, coherence, represented here by the ark, and subsistence, represented by these three lines. Let's think of subsistence and coherence within the Trinity and get a bit more precision. I'm going to say this uh, in, in order to put as fine a point as we can on this. The subsistent Trinitarian person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is intrinsically intelligible as he is distinguished from the other persons by an incommunicable personal property. That's a more technically rigorous way of saying it. This way of speaking ensures that the persons are distinct at every point in their order of personal existence. Intrinsically intelligible and distinguished by incommunicable personal properties. Authentic, personal diversity is fundamental to the Godhead. But complementing that, the subsistent person, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, is not sustained in his essence by another Trinitarian person. Since all persons subsist equally, and without remainder as the entire underived essence of God. This way of speaking ensures that each person is equal in dignity and status and possesses the entire divine essence in the same degree and with all of its perfections without remainder. Authentic essential unity is essential or fundamental to the Godhead. Therefore, to restate this language of Orthodox Trinitarianism that Van Til called the concrete universal in, the, in a way that accents equal ultimacy. The Godhead is an unconfused trinity of persons in a substantial unity and an undivided substantial unity in a trinity of persons. There's neither confusion of persons nor a division of essence within the Godhead. In the triune Godhead resides a unity without division and a trinity without confusion. That is the concrete universal. That is the concrete universal as absolutely, categorically, comprehensively redefined 
in light of classical Calvinistic Trinitarianism of which Van Til is a 20th century champion. It's this precise formulation, and not anything else, diagrammed on our board that Van Til affirms is the concrete universal. Let me try to state it in one summary term. The concrete universal is a self-contained an immutable equal ultimacy of unity and diversity and diversity in unity. Reformed Trinitarian logic undergirds this equal ultimacy doctrine. And it is this Calvinistic conception of the ontological trinity that Van Til expresses to make a point of contact with the idealist of his day and says this is our non-correlativist, exhaustively personal, self-contained, concrete universal. It is this Trinitarian conception, and not another, that controls the line of the, the positive line of concrete thinking. Before you go anywhere else, you must affirm this. Now, let me do this to try to build a bridge to those who are accustomed uh, to older philosophical language that might express some of these same uh, conceptions. Let me put it this way. Further explicating the character of this concrete universal that we have. There is no potentiality at any point either in God's essential unity or personal diversity. This statement cuts off all forms of pantheism, correlativism, or mutualism. Think of them as rough synonyms because they carry the same conception. God's essence, in other words, contains no unactualized potential to change. The persons of the Godhead contain no unactualized potential to change. God is pure act in his essential unity and in his personal diversity as both are equally ultimate. There is no way to say, given this, that Van Til has conceded an inch of terrain to the cor correlativism intrinsic to absolute idealism. The pure actuality of the Trinity as the concrete universal is the beginning and ending of all concrete thinking. That is Van Til's point. The concrete line of thinking begins, proceeds, and ends with the self-contained ontological trinity. And that line of thinking that begins with the ontological trinity continues through the immutable decree to the work of creation, pre- and post-fall acts of covenantal condescension, and the process of differentiation in terms of those categories. That is the procession, the movement, the development of the concrete line of thinking. Having begun then with our concrete universal, we have the ontological Trinitarian foundation for a philosophy of history controlled at every point by this doctrine of God, and by the decree, immutable, eternal, and um, sovereign, of this God and no other. And as we move forward and continue to develop it, we're going to take, make a transition from the ontological trinity to the movement here of the decree that begins to bring into view God's relation to the created order. That will be the second main movement in the positive line of concrete thinking. So the second movement in the line of concrete thinking consists in the eternal decree and its bearing on the work of creation and the special acts of providence in the covenant of works and covenant of grace that begin a process of differentiation. Now, what we're doing in terms of the diagram here is we've got the creator-creature distinction in place. We looked in more detail at the creator side in our previous
previous section. Now we're going to look more, in more detail at the creature side, and I've put on the board the history of special revelation, pre-fall, post-fall Old Covenant, post-fall New Covenant, and the movements that will occur in history in relation now to God's eternal decree. So we're out of the consideration of the ontological trinity apart from creation, and we've moved to the ontological trinity in relation to creation. And remember this always, the ontological trinity wills a new relation without modification or change to what is created. And the alpha point of that relation does not consist in creation, but it consists in the decree. Picking up on this, Van Til says this. This is where he's going to merge now um, or bring together uh, in, in a cohesive unity the concrete universal and the creation in light of decree. He says, the ontological trinity will be our interpretive concept everywhere. God is our concrete universal. In him, being and thought are coterminous. In him, the problem of knowledge is solved. If we begin thus with the ontological trinity as our concrete universal, we differ, frankly, from every school of philosophy and from every school of science, not merely in our conclusions, but in our starting point and method as well. For us, the facts are what they are. Now we're turning to history. The facts are what they are. And the universals are what they are because of their common dependence upon the ontological trinity. Thus, as earlier discussed, the facts are correlative to the universals, and because of this correlativity, there is genuine progress in history. Because of it, the moment has significance. Now, Van Til's point is a simple one, and let me make that point basically clear here. The patterned movement of diverse features in history, the distinct lockstep transitions in time that advance God's singular decree in history, and the singular purpose of all the diverse creatures giving glory to the one living and true God, these facts and universals find their ground in their common dependence on the ontological trinity. This is Van Til's philosophy of history in its broadest statement. All of the diverse particulars in their patterned unity reveal the immutable plan and express the triune glory of the ontological trinity. There is meaning in history. We'll, we'll call this entire line Van Til's going to call it later the moment, borrowing a line from Kierkegaard, divesting it of his philosophical connotations. There is meaning for the moment of history because that moment at every point in every lockstep movement through time is an expression of the eternal and immutable decree of the self-contained trinity. The eternal decree infallibly determine God by his eternal decree infallibly determines whatsoever comes to pass so that in Van Til's language the triune God is the ultimate cause of whatsoever comes to pass Van Til quotes from Calvin page 65 of the um, Common Grace in the Gospel volume he says, Calvin lays great stress on the incomprehensible will of God. This is particularly the case in his treatise on predestination of God. In replying to Pythias and Gregorius, he falls back on this point again and again. In the first section of the book, Calvin gives the doctrine of election a slight touch, but even in this slight touch, he refers to Romans 9.20. Of it, he says, the apostle in his appeal adopts an axiom or a universal acknowledgement, 
which not only ought to be held fast by all godly minds, but deeply engraven in the breast of common sense, that the inscrutable judgment of God is deeper than can be penetrated by man. End of quote. In the decree, God, particularly in election and reprobation, sets on display his incomprehensible will. We discern the inscrutable judgment of God that is deeper than can be penetrated by man. Why? Because the works of God outside of himself reveal the self-contained, immutable, and inexhaustible being of God. God does not limit himself in his revelation. His revelation remains incomprehensible to the creature, though accommodated It is incomprehensible. And as we've seen, God's relation to creation then remains a mystery. And this raises the question of God's sovereignty and human freedom. In Van Til's language following Calvin, God and his decree are the ultimate cause of whatsoever comes to pass, and the creature's freedom is the proximate cause of whatsoever comes to pass. And so, In this relation, when we're thinking of Adam in his relation to God, God's decree is the ultimate cause of whatsoever comes to pass in history. But Van Til is going to argue with equal strenuousness that Adam, especially as a covenant head, is the proximate cause of whatsoever comes to pass for the human race. And I'm trying to be detailed here uh, and, and focused on something. When it comes to God and his eternal decree, God infallibly and eternally decrees whatsoever comes to pass as the ultimate cause. Yet, in history, as a covenant head, Adam's obedience or disobedience is the proximate cause of whatsoever comes to pass. And Ventil's point is that it is the eternal and immutable decree that confers on the moment of history and of Adam in his secondary proximate causal agency, authenticity. Now to the quote. Ventil says, The problem Calvin is discussing is that of predestination. The objection raised against the doctrine of predestination is, of course, that it it condemns secondary causes to insignificance. Pythias, says Calvin, knows not how to make the least distinction between remote and proximate causes. Pythias urges the full bucket difficulty against Calvin's insistence that God's counsel is the ultimate cause of whatsoever comes to pass. Calvin, in turn, insists that it is quite legitimate to urge man's sin as the proximate and God's counsel as the ultimate cause of man's final perdition. This is a quote from Common Grace 65 and 66. So the distinction between the ultimate and proximate causality of whatsoever comes to pass is enshrined in Reformed theology in the Westminster Confession of Faith, for instance. Listen to this. Um, And and this is a very helpful um, section, Westminster Confession 5, 1 through 2, on this distinction between ultimate and proximate or secondary causality. It says this, God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most holy and wise providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. 5.2. Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause All things come to pass immutably and infallibly, yet by the same providence 
he orders them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. Now, on this commentary, uh, Westminster Confession 5, 1 through 2, A.A. Hodge, whom we've looked at before, offers very helpful commentary on this particular section of the Confession. And this undergirds and expands what Van Til is communicating about this distinction between ultimate and secondary causality. Hodge uh, says in his commentary that the deists and rationalists assert that God's providence is best understood as the first of a series of causes and effects, and that he is supposed only to touch his creation at its commencement, and gives, quote, a permanent, independent being exterior to themselves and leaves them to the unmodified exercise of their own faculties. On this deistic or rationalist construction, you find, especially in various forms of Pelagianism, Socinianism, and open theism, human agency falls outside of God's directing and governing. This also enshrines a view of libertarian free agency, where God not only does not foreordain, but does not foreknow the free actions of his creatures. That's one error that ultimate and proximate causality uh, critiques, because the view of the rationalist and the deist denies ultimate causality of whatsoever comes to pass and gives God's causality only the first in a series of causes and effects. So it, in effect, denies this distinction of ultimate and secondary causality. He says, secondly, pantheists regard all the phenomena of the universe of every kind as merely various modes of one universal absolute substance. The substance is one, the modes are many. Created things have no real being of their own and exist only as immediate causes of the state of their action or of of their creation. They are a direct act of the divine power and thus God is the only real agent in creation. So if if deism or rationalism denies the reality of God as the ultimate cause of whatsoever comes to pass, pantheists deny the reality of secondary or proximate causes. Deism denies ultimate causality of whatsoever comes to pass, and pantheism denies proximate causality of whatsoever comes to pass. The third view, Hodge says, quote, is the true one. God gave to all substances a real and permanent existence as entities. They really possess all such active and passive properties as God has severally endued with them. These properties have a real and not merely an apparent efficiency as second causes in producing the effects due to them. The precise nature of the exercise of divine energy whereby God interpenetrates the universe with his presence, embraces it in his power, and upholds it in his being is not revealed and is not discoverable. That is page 92-93 of Hodge's Confession. This third view is the view of Calvin and the view of Van Til over against all forms of deistic rationalism on the one side, denying ultimate causality to God, and of all forms of pantheism on the other side, denying any meaningful secondary causality among the creatures. Hodge uses the language indiscoverable, and Van Til uses the language of incomprehensible to speak of the precise relation between God as the ultimate and man as the proximate cause of whatsoever comes to pass. Van Til quotes Calvin along these very lines, page 66 of Common Grace. He says, We are to remember then that on the question of the relation of God's counsel to what 
takes place in time. Quote, the wisdom of Christ is too high and too deep to come within the compass of man's understanding. There is nothing in the whole circle of spiritual doctrine which does not far surpass the capacity of man and confound its utmost reach. So, to use a concrete example, which we will probe further, God ordained that Adam would sin against him and fall in time, and that decree controls whatsoever comes to pass as the ultimate cause. Yet, Adam, endowed with free agency, freely, voluntarily, and without compulsion, sinned against God, and by that sin brought wrath and condemnation on all who would proceed in the line of history from him by ordinary generation. And it is his sin that explains the connection between Adam and his posterity. There is authentic secondary causality that is determinative for the course of history, even as God has ordained that whole course in advance. Ultimate causality does not compete with secondary causality. Secondary causality does not eclipse ultimate causality. But Van Til notes that Pythias and other rationalists, Hegel and other pantheists, um, whether they are Socinian or Libertarian, they will all uniformly charge the Calvinist with contradiction. Pythias would ask, Van Til says, quote, why God created such natures as he knew would sin? Pythias knows how to employ a well-turned syllogism. There's no escaping the force of his objection. If God is the ultimate cause back of whatsoever comes to pass, Pythias can, on his baseless, rightly insist that God is the cause of sin. Calvin knew this. He attempts no answer by means of a non-Christian methodology. With Augustine, he would throw man back on the consideration of what he is and what is the capacity of his mind. Nay, but O man, who art thou to reply against God? Page 66. Van Til continues then on to page 67. We shall meet this charge of contradiction by asserting that we are the true defenders of the meaning of second causes. History has meaning just because God's counsel is in back of it. End of quote. Now, in this context, Van Til sets the belief in the apparently contradictory over against the really contradictory. And this distinction is absolutely critical to understand. Please hear this as we now talk about this relation of God as the ultimate cause, Adam as the proximate cause, as, uh, as each are true and authentic. The one does not cancel the other. Van Til is going to call this entire relation between um, the creator and the creature, this entire relation, is apparently contradictory. Apparently contradictory. It's apparent contradiction. Now, what does he mean by the apparently contradictory? There is an apparent contradiction understood as a point of ineffable mystery in our confession that the condescended triune God remains immutably absolute in his relation to creation. Such a relation is incomprehensible to the creature. How can God relate to what is not God without changing, without limiting himself, without modifying himself, without assuming a new mode of existence or taking on covenantal properties? Such a relation of a condescended but immutable God is an ineffable mystery to the creature. However, 
The substance of Van Til's concept of apparent contradiction is that to affirm God changes in relation to creation is to affirm the really contradictory. What is the really contradictory according to Van Til? It is that God is both absolute and correlative to man. Now, what am I saying? Let me, let me give you an example. In Common Grace in the Gospel, page 9, up front, when talking about apparent versus real contradiction, Van Til says that Karl Barth and the dialectical theologians embrace the really contradictory. What does he mean by that? He doesn't mean that they uh, do, he's not, when he says they embrace the really contradictory, he means that they believe God is subject to temporal conditions that exist in a third time along with the creature as God and the creature participate in a third thing. That's what is really contradictory to Van Til. Real contradiction is that there must be a tertium quid, a thing God and the creature share in their sovereignly willed relation to one another. Speaking of Bart, Van Til says, the idea of identifying man's being with his participation in the act of God saving him is really only the modern equivalent of the Greek notion of identifying man with his participation in the changeless being of God. So when Van Til says that Bart and the dialectical theologians believe in the really contradictory, he is saying that they believe man participates in the being of God in a third time in a supra-historical realm called Geschichte. It is there that a third thing, a common time, relates God and the creature as both participate in something that joins them together in a mutual process of development through time. Because dialectical theologians affirm a species of correlativism between God and man in the Christ event, they believe in the really contradictory. The really contradictory stands over against what Van Til calls the apparently contradictory. The latter, the apparently contradictory, is the mystery that follows from absolute and living persons of the Trinity relating without change to the world and determining whatsoever comes to pass by an unchanging decree. That is the apparently contradictory. Van Til is saying, if you believe that, it's going to appear that the eternal decree of God, his ultimate causality, evacuates history of its significance, undermines the integrity of secondary causes. But Van Til's saying, if you don't believe in such a God, self-contained in his being, absolute in his decree, then you believe in the really contradictory, and God and the creature are merged together in a common time or process. That is the really contradictory of Bart. That is the Geschichte conception. The distinction between the apparent and the really contradictory for Ventil hinges on what a person thinks about the being and decree of God in relation to creation. The apparently contradictory, to state it one last time, is that the unmodified, self-contained, triune God relates to creation and by his immutable decree secures the integrity of the moment and the authenticity of secondary causes. The really contradictory is that God submerges himself into the becoming of the creature and participates in the moment and thereby undermines its integrity by making it into a pantheistic, pantheistic abyss of mutual process and change. 
In the final perspective, Dorner, Bart, Oliphant, Frame, Ware, Pinnock have embraced the really contradictory, as Van Til defines it. And so as you were, were thinking about the decree of God and its immutable, comprehensive scope, Van Til's argument that such a decree, A, gives authenticity to the moment, B, gives integrity to Adam's freedom and the proximate causality of his decisions in time that have a bearing on the whole course of human history, and C, enshrines the apparently contradictory, the ineffable mystery of the self-contained being and immutable decree of God, unchanged, relating to creation, and controlling whatsoever comes to pass. This is the second main movement in the positive line of concrete thinking. We're going to move next to the earlier and later grace and the process of differentiation between the elect and the reprobate ordained from before the foundation of the world in the immutable decrees 